Hi, I'm Ian, co-founder at Dig Insights and president of Dig's innovation insights platform, Upside. Welcome to Dig In. Dig In is the place to stay up to date on what's happening in the world of innovation, research, and technology, to find inspiration from today's business and innovation leaders, and to properly dig into hot topics that matter for consumer brands right now. And when applicable, we'll bring our own research to that conversation. Welcome back to this week's episode of Dig In. I'm excited to have Eric Chu with us today. He's the Director of Research and Industry Insights at Interact. Um, Today, we're going to talk about the payment industry at large, the trends that he's seeing impact the space and how the industry is responding to those trends. And we're also going to touch on how all of this impacts his role in Research and Industry Insights. Eric, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Megan. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Great. Awesome. Um, Do you mind kicking us off by just telling us a little bit about what you do at Interac? And um, I believe there are four teams that make up your sort of wider department. I'd love to learn a little bit about that structure. Yeah, sure. So I'm part of a group called, called, uh, in short, CDO. Uh, uh, or chief data office. We report into uh, chief data officer and uh, we're part of a larger um, tech and ops group uh, within Interac. So within CDO, we have four teams. Uh, Our department overall is about, I lose track because we have some part-timers, but uh, about 35 uh, to 40 people. Um, As I said, part of those are part-time, and that's because half our team is made up of uh, fraud analytics and fraud operations. So what they do is, as the name suggests, fight fraud. And since the fraudsters are at work 24 hours a day, we actually have a group of part-timers who work 24-7 every day of the year. Uh, doing their job, uh, trying to flag fraudulent transactions. So that's a big part of uh, our use of data and analytics at Interac. The other half of uh, CDO is uh, is comprised of um, what I do, which is market research, which uh, is in charge of looking at external data relevant to running the business. And then two other groups, which are... uh, um, tasked with looking at the internal data that we generate. So we're a payments company. We generate billions of uh, transactions every year and therefore have billions of data points uh, that we can leverage. So there's a group called Advanced Analytics, which uh, does research into those transactions to look at trends and and all that. And another group, which is uh, Business Intelligence, BI. So they are uh, tasked with um, keeping track of our business in in the form of uh, dashboards, things like that, uh, to really keep us on track. So those are the uh, four broad groups. And I'm, of course, uh, uh, part of the market research group. Really interesting. Um, I mean, it's it's always interesting to hear how different companies kind of approach um, the data and analytics space. Um, I think what's interesting about your background is that you actually started out in marketing and interact. Yes. Yeah, I did. (laughs) So you made the transition into, I guess, a more specific area, um, you know, research and and marketing are, are very interconnected, but how do you feel like that background in marketing kind of impacts the work that you do today? Yeah, I think it definitely does. 
So the, my marketing background, I think, uh, really helps me in terms of, well, firstly, it helps in terms of empathy. So one of my uh, biggest internal clients and users of the data and trends that I, and insights that I generate is, of course, the uh, marketing and communications group. So they are uh, always coming to me to, to look for insights that can help them uh, you know, up their game in terms of marketing and communications. Uh, and I have a lot of empathy for what they do. And I like to think that's partly my uh, marketing background, having been a user of this data and insights, that uh, I have a really good understanding of how it's used and how it's it, it's not used or should not be used. And uh, I, I think, I, think um, I would like to think that um, I have a lot of empathy towards them. Uh, the other part, I guess, is the practicality of it. You know, it's, it's one thing to generate insights. It's another to use it, to apply it to a practical situation like, you know, like a campaign. So um, I think this gives me a unique view as to how it, it can be used, how it should be used. And hopefully that uh, brings an extra level of, um, of utility um, that I can, or value add, I should say, that uh, I can bring to the table. Yeah, that makes sense. As someone who, you know, I'm in marketing <laughs> and it's really nice to have researchers who totally get the practical element of, you know, how do I make this insight actionable or um, when and when I sh when should I and when should I not sort of um, apply, like the nuances there are, are really important. In yes. terms of, yeah, in terms of um, yourself, why, why did you move more specifically into sort of industry insights and research? Yeah, it was always a part of my job in marketing. Uh, a much smaller part, of course, of course, uh, in terms of uh, research, and it was really done to support the marketing work that we did, or I did. Um, and as the company grew, as Interact grew, our need for data and research uh, also grew, and we under the, the company recognized a need to mature that function beyond what we were. Uh, doing at that point, which was essentially supporting marketing communications. Uh, there was, uh, you know, product areas that we were growing, innovation groups that were growing within the company, growing in sophistication, growing in terms of their need for additional data, additional insights. So uh, they uh, created a full-time position in uh, market research. Uh, it was originally under enterprise strategy. And uh, the opportunity opened up and, and uh, I was always interested in this area and had worked in this area previously. Uh, and so it was, I thought, a, a really good move for myself to, to go into that area. And, and I'm really glad I did. Amazing. Um, there's something interesting about, and I guess that's, that's the way that um, CDO kind of started, right? Is that when the company sort of matured and understood? Is that when your sort of department became a thing? Yeah, exactly. 
So okay. it, exactly, it wasn't a thing before. Um, <laughs> we had, term, yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> So we had always done fraud analytics, um, you know, to, to, that's always a very important component of running a payments network. But in terms of using data to make data-driven decisions uh, was something, I, I don't want to say it's new, but it's, uh, it's an area that we felt we had to be much more mature about. Yes. Um, and and so it was really part of the evolution of the company uh, in terms of what we needed to be. And I guess the other part is um, not everyone is aware, but Interac Corp used to be Interac Association. So we used to be a nonprofit association uh, comprised of members uh, like the banks uh, and acquirers that uh, are part of that network. So as we uh, transitioned out of being a association uh, on a nonprofit basis to being a corporation with a for-profit mandate, uh, the, the needs of the business grew and matured as well along with it. So I think the growth of the CDO group is in part uh, related to the overall growth and transition of the company as a whole. That makes sense. And I had no idea. I did not know that it went from um, an association to a corporation. Um, that's that makes a lot of sense. When we think about the other data or the the analytics um, that your team are are working with, um, it's often you know we talk about how market research and the insights that you're generating in analytics, like it can be tricky to kind of mesh those two things. Um, is that something that you've experienced within um, Interact or within your role? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, you know, we we generate billions of dollars, the billions of uh, transactions every year. Uh, so it's a very rich data set to um, to analyze and to pull trends from. Uh, but unfortunately, it's uh, it's it also has its limitations because it is transactions based. So uh, what I do is uh, on the market research side is to put some hum, a human, I shouldn't say human face, um, some kind of human dimension to those transactions. In other words, you know, who are the people using it, you know, generating these transactions, uh, everything down to the very basics, like basic demographic information, gender, you know, age, income, all those different things, all the way, you know, up to, to attitudes and, and behaviors that uh, influence how they spend and how they pay. Marrying those two together, the transaction and the human um, uh, information is not easy at all, uh, especially for a payments network like Interact, because we're the middle guys between a bank which has information about their consumers and merchants who have information about uh, shoppers. Uh, being the payments network in the middle, we only see the transactions. So we have no insight into actually who is the, you know, who are, who actually made that transaction and what was it for. So uh, when we try to marry those two together in terms of, you know, understanding the human behind the transaction, it's a very tricky exercise. And if there's, uh, 
if there's any advice I would give is that, you know, do it with caution and do it with rigor because it's very easy to, to force. There's a lot of promise with the merging of those two um, data sets. Uh, so there's a lot of theoretical value that you can generate from it. But to actually do it in practice is actually very tricky. And if we don't, if we don't exercise, <clears throat> excuse me, the necessary caution and rigor, you can come up with insights that are basically incorrect or misleading. So I think it's very, um, uh, it's very important that we do it cautiously. Yeah, that's so interesting because it's also such a growing space. I mean, the insights world, um, you know, it's not now, it's, it's been happening for years, but it's growing to mean so many different things. Like research means so many different things. Like analytics means, means so many different things. It's broadening in scope. Um, and I think that that trickiness of meshing the data or using um, different data sets and types of data to inform uh, one another is something that so many different industries are wrestling with. So it's it's always good to hear from someone like yourself kind of how you guys are, are doing that. Um, yeah, the, the other, I guess, tricky thing about it is people trained in these dif disciplines don't necessarily have a full understanding of the big picture. So someone who's trained in analytics uh, may have a certain view to the world and to data and people who are trained in market research may have a different one. And, and the language of the two don't always mesh uh, and the data sets don't mesh. So, you know, when you have that combination and also the tools don't always mesh. So when you have that combination, um, it's, it's easy to, to force a meshing that isn't there, if, if that makes sense. And, yeah. and that could lead to, to um, misleading insights. Yeah. I mean, if we take a, a step back, how do you kind of approach? Because, you know, we're talking about how different mm -hmm. functions approach understanding uh, the consumer, understanding the, the industry at large differently. How do you approach getting an accurate view of the space? Is there anything kind of unique about your approach or Interact's approach? I'd love to get a sense of what that looks like in your day-to-day. -day. Yeah, I, I won't say it's unique, but I think one approach that is needed uh, that we try to do is to really get everyone to understand the, A, the business and kind of what we're trying to solve for. So both, the, um, both on the market research side on, and on the analytics side, we need to all be on the same page in terms of what is the business problem that we're trying to solve and kind of go one level up from the data. You know, don't get lost in the data and really understand the business problem uh, that we're trying to address with the work that we're, we're doing. And if we have a kind of common understanding of that, I think that goes a long way to to solving the problems and understanding, you know, what we can and cannot do with the, uh, with the different data sets. And what kind of projects or methodologies do you use to, you know, um, help people get a sense of the, the, the market? Yeah. So, so one of the things, one of probably my biggest, uh, 
projects every year is to conduct a payments diary that uh, we do with, with Dig Insights. And uh, that's a very important piece of work uh, that we do and, and pretty unique in the industry. Very few people uh, or very few companies uh, do payments diaries. Uh, it, it's a, quite an expensive and rigorous exercise, uh, but we feel well worth the extra effort. Um, so payments diaries, you, you get consumers to keep track of their spending and payment, in, in our case, over a seven-day period. Um, and I think the insight that we generate from this uh, is really helpful in kind of kind of better understanding the transactions uh, or the transaction trends that we see on the analytics side. Uh, because we have a data set of transactions from the payments diary, and that can be used and leveraged against the transactions set, uh, data set we see in our network data. So, uh, so it's not just looking at consumers and understanding them from a survey perspective where you get a lot of survey data, uh, but it's also uh, as a part of this, uh, because we are generating also uh, transactional data from the payments diary, we can look at it in a much more one-to-one -one, uh, uh, relationship. So that's been really helpful for us. And one of our primary, I guess, tools for for generating additional insights and, and then kind of meshing the two together. Yeah, I can imagine um, it being really hard if I was filling out a survey to recall like how I paid for something or how, even how much something costs or anything like that. So I guess that that diary aspect is crucial. Yeah, and in fact, it's uh, that's precisely the reason why we do it. Uh, people are just not very reliable and remembering how they spend and how they pay. And in particular, um, one of the biggest trends uh, that we see in payments is, of course, the move away from cash. And uh, to measure cash share accurately and reliably, we really do need to turn to payments diaries. And that's because people do most of their, people pay their most insignificant transactions on cash. You know, your cup of coffee in the morning. Uh, maybe your your when people were on on uh, on public transit, uh, paying for public transit with cash. These are the small kind of everyday payments that people forget about when they answer a survey. And the, and as a result, uh, what we found before we started doing these diaries is that consumers vastly underestimate the amount of cash that they use in a typical day. If you ask people, oh, yeah, I hardly carry any cash around, I hardly use it. But when you force them to record it in a diary, they found out, whoa, it's, you know, people use it a lot more than they think. Interesting. Oh yeah. I'm, <laughs> now I'm like, should I just keep a diary and figure out how much cash I'm getting? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Cause I'm sure I would have, I would underestimate yeah. it. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So you've been running these payment diaries for a little while. I was going to ask a little bit about how your approach to understanding um, industry insights has maybe changed over the last few years, but do you feel like it has? Have you need to update the way that you understand the market um, because of, I don't know, changes in the way that people are paying or anything else going on in, in adjacent industries? 
Yeah, definitely. I think uh, one of the biggest changes that I've had to do is to pay a lot more attention to, as you say, um, the adjacent spaces around payments. So pay, paying for stuff is one thing, but shopping behavior in general uh, or payment or um, the need to pay for things uh, is another. So for example, uh, if you think about, you know, we used to, we used to buy music by, by going to the music store. You know, you, you look through, you rifle through the CDs in your favorite record store. That's how we used to buy music. Uh, but who does that anymore? There aren't any, there aren't a lot of um, music stores anymore. And that's because people started getting them digitally. You know, first we had iTunes. So you would buy your music uh, digitally on, on your either phone or your, on your uh, computer. Um, but then people started streaming music. So, you know, when was the last time you went to iTunes to buy a tune? Well, most people don't do it anymore. Uh, they just subscribe to Spotify or, or one of the other services, music streaming yeah. services. <laughs> I, so, I cannot remember when, yeah, I, exactly. when I gone. So as shopping habits changed, how people paid for that service also changed. So I think as a market researcher, what I've had to do is, or, or rather research in the payments industry, is to really pay attention to everything else that's happening out there in the retail space and not just be myopic about, oh, what's happening in payments, you know, how are the people paying for things? Because ultimately, nobody wants to pay for things. You know, you, you don't go into a store to pay. You, you know, you go into a store because you want to buy something because you need something. Uh, so it's really paying attention to what people are doing and then payments is just a, a byproduct of that you know, human behavior, which is to go out and buy something or to consume something. Uh, and it's, it's getting trickier, I must say, uh, because payments is, the way payments is going is that uh, there are, especially in the, in the tech field, uh, increasingly payments is being embedded into the shopping experience so that it's not even a discrete act anymore. If you think about your Uber ride or your Lyft ride, you, know, you order a, a car to pick you up, you go, go wherever you need to go, you get out, that's it. There is no act of paying in that transaction. Uh, or you, you, know, you, you pull out your, your phone and you listen to your music on Spotify. Where is the payment action in that you know, consumption of music. Uh, it isn't, it, it's embedded in the whole shop, you know, in the whole service experience. And therefore, um, payments is less and less part of, you know, how people consume things. And as we, as that trend continues, continues, we need to be uh, more cognizant of how that impacts payments. So that's something that I'm really looking uh, closely at and, and, you know, and, and need to, to keep track of. Yeah, I was just, as you were um, explaining that, I mean, it's such a good point. I'm thinking about those payment diaries and 
if someone's taking an Uber, do they think of that as like a, a discrete payment? <laughs> I mean, I'm yeah. like, how, you know, is that something that they're actually thinking? Or when I open up my Spotify in the morning, when I start, you know, making my to-do list for the day, is that making a micropayment <laughs> that goes towards my premium membership? Um, it's just a really interesting thing to consider. I mean, especially as you go forwards, I wonder if people are, as they're jotting down what they're spending in a diary, um, if they're actually recalling that. Yeah, that's a really interesting challenge from a methodology standpoint. You know, how do you capture transactions that are kind of almost non-transactions, if that makes sense? Uh, and and even if you if you think about that Uber ride, you know, we've we've had numerous kind of debates about, well, is that a e e-commerce transaction or is that an in-person transaction? Well, it's in-person in the sense that you actually have, you know, it, it, it's in-person in that in the sense that you are in the car, uh, you are present uh, when that transaction takes place, and yet it happens in the background. So is it an e-com transaction in person? We've had lots of debates about that. And, uh, you know, and, and as a consumer, I got to say, it's kind of difficult to how to classify that. So we have to pay attention to the, these things, you know, even in terms of how we construct that diary. Yeah, that's fascinating. As a non-researcher, I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Are there, um, so we talked a bit about retail and shopping and play embedded experience. Mm -hmm. Are there any other sort of um, adjacent spaces or industries that you feel are impacting the payments industry? Yeah, part, part of, um, part of um, <clears throat> a trend that we've been watching is just this move towards subscription-based buying. And we've mentioned, we've already talked about it uh, in the context of Spotify. But it's not only happening in the realm of music consumption. It's happening in a lot of different areas. So, um, so if you think of uh, video, of course, there's Netflix, but also in terms of things like meals. So uh, if you think about HelloFresh and uh, good food and all these food delivery services, you can subscribe to them uh, where yes, who would have subscribed to meals or groceries in the past, but people do that today uh, to an increasing degree. Um, Cineplex, for example, just uh, they, they launched, uh, I think it's called Sin Club. Uh, I can't remember the exact name now, but even for movie going, you know, there's a option to subscribe. So a lot of companies are moving to that model. Oh, the other very prominent one is software. You know, when was the last time you went to a store to buy a box of software, you know, that you took home and upgrade, you know, and pop the CD into your, your computer? Well, a lot of software is delivered via browsers today uh, directly to your, to your computer. So, uh, this move to subscription-based consumption um, is something that's really uh, impacting payments and, and impacting how we we watch for uh, watch trends. And I guess the other one is, uh, and again we talked about this already, is just the embedding of payments within the 
shopping experience. So it's not just um, the Ubers and, and, and Spotify. It's, it's also uh, in, in, so in the US, the most prominent is Amazon Go. But in the, in, only in the past week, I think, I, I saw this news story. This is new startup in Toronto where uh, it was a convenience store where you go in and you pick up your groceries and you leave without ha having to pay. And, and I think uh, 7-Eleven is experimenting with this as well. There's a lot of retailers looking at retail innovations to help, um, to help shoppers make their uh, shopping experience less or more seamless. And, and, and yeah. payments is part of that, you know, making it more convenient for them interesting yeah it's like so i guess in that situation would you be like scanning your groceries in as you're picking them up how does that work yeah for the uh, for that startup that it, it was a new story on tv and for 7-eleven I, I believe that's exactly what you do you uh, have an app and you scan your items uh as you go and then you scan your phone uh as you leave and that takes care of your your purchases uh, in the case of amazon go they've even gone one step further and you go in you pick up what you need and you leave you don't even need to pull out your phone so they've incorporated technologies to uh, keep track of that as part of the shopping it's so cool so, yeah amazing um so we've only got a few minutes left i wanted to touch a little bit on um, you know, what your view is specifically on how these external pressures and changes are going to change the payment industry. So we've talked about, you know, what those are, but what does that actually mean for, um, for the payments industry, in your opinion? Yeah, so what it means for the payments industry is that we have to be increasingly adaptive to these new retail innovations that are happening. So how do we keep uh, abreast of these developments. So I think as a payments industry, we can be both enabling and, um, and following both at the same time. So uh, I think we need to ensure that we have the options in place to enable uh, retailers to go where they need to go. So, you know, as they develop these innovations, we need to have the payments options in the background for them to adopt so that uh, these innovations can take place so that payments doesn't become a bottleneck in that, you know, in, in that innovation process. Um, but I think we can also be a leader there as well in the sense of creating products and services that enable innovations in the retail space. So we're actually leading in terms of uh, creating possibilities so that retail, retailers um, and other um, providers can, can kind of bring their innovations along and it opens up you know, certain channels and certain uh, options for them as well. That's cool. Is there anything that springs to mind in terms of how you could be leading or helping retailers continue to innovate anything you guys are developing or anything you've got your eye on yeah so there's one area that's actually not even in the consumer area so 
just this past uh, August, we launched uh, Intrac e-transfer for business. Uh, so it's, you know, e-transfer is a very well established in Canada. It's, uh, it's one of the main uh, ways that Canadians exchange and move money between accounts. Uh, and we've really uh, replaced checks as the, uh, as the go-to method of doing that, uh, you know, in, in the past 10 years, especially. So we've seen exponential growth in e-transfer, especially uh, um, accelerated during the pandemic. Um, we introduced a business, enhanced business version of e-transfer. And I think it's, uh, it's going to, it has the potential to transform B2B payments, you know, how companies pay each other, how companies pay their employees, et cetera. So it's really opened up a, a, a brand new option um, for them that wasn't, that the consumer version of e-transfer wasn't quite meeting the needs of. Uh, so, you know, that's one example of an area that, uh, that we're continuing to innovate with, uh, and that's in the, the corporate payment space. So it's not just uh, about consumers uh, anymore. Very cool. Um, all right, Eric, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Any last notes or anything you wanna leave the listeners with? No, this has been, uh, this has been great, uh, Megan. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Awesome. Um, we'll be back next week. For now, I will say goodbye. Thanks so much, Eric. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Dig In. If you want more information about Dig Insights or Upside, please check us out on LinkedIn or at our websites at diginsights.com or upside.com. If you have any ideas for future episodes or would like to be a guest, please feel free to direct message me through the LinkedIn app. Thank you.